0: second epistle we will be reading the entirety of the third chapter so the end of second peter so second peter starting uh, second peter three starting with verse one and reading through the end of the end of the epistle i would ask that you give your careful attention as this is the very word of god This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and commandment of of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And count, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other script the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawlessness, lawless people, And lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we uh, thank you for these words, though they are disturbing words, of the end of of this world as we shall find it. And yet, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us who understand these things. And that you would prepare us well as you are doing through the words of your Apostle here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The end of the world is an ongoing fascination for many. It's a topic that throughout time has garnered all manner of attention and thought. It is the subject of seemingly endless books and movies depicting it in all manner of ways, even going so far as to use lowbrow humor in the case of a 2013 film, This is the End, or episodes of the cartoon The Simpsons. But the end of the world is no laughing matter. And even though some of the attention it receives is unfortunate and even tongue-in-cheek, Peter tells us here that attention to how the world ends is in fact warranted. See so he responds to those who say there is no judgment to come, he makes it clear that the knowledge of such judgment should play a role in our everyday spiritual life. Given that, let's take an extended look about what Peter says here about the end of the world and how it fig- figures into the larger picture painted about these events elsewhere in scripture and as we do that we will see first of all that the world is going to end suddenly and unexpectedly that the world will end publicly and spectacularly and that the world will end in God's timing and on his terms but first, the day the world is going to end suddenly and unexpectedly. Well, this is clear here that, uh, uh, that as, as Peter says in verse 10, that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief. And this is this day of the Lord that is represented here is as it's represented elsewhere in Scripture, in Isaiah 13. Starting with verse four, and the sound of tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of heavens, and the Lord and the weapons of his indignation will destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. And in Joel, in chapter 1, verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and the destruction, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. The day of the Lord is a day of the return of Christ in power, his second advent. And these two Old Testament prophecies that we've read that go along with other Old Testament writings on it account... In some ways, for the confusion that Christ's disciples had during his earthly reign, what they were expecting was what Isaiah prophesied in chapter thirteen. Here, that the Lord is going to lay waste to his enemies in uh, in the in the day of the Lord, and they thought that they had they had rightly associated themselves with that very Lord in that day, and they thought that. Even up, until, even up until his ascension. You may remember in Acts chapter one, they asked questions. They asked the question of him, Lord, is it now that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Even after his death and his resurrection, they still were confused about what Jesus's first advent was about. And Jesus had to set them straight, and then he ascended into heaven. And they recognized, Peter among them, recognized at that time, oh, he's coming back. And it's when he comes back that we are going to see these things that we expected to see this time. So he has come first, offering peace and healing, and he will come later offering something very different. And Joel in particular is quoted by Peter by, in his sermon on Pentecost where he cites Joel 2.31, which we'll examine in a minute. But in saying that the, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief, well, it's the na- if we understand the nature of a thief's work, we understand what he's saying here. A thief generally strikes when we don't expect him. When we were living in Berlin, we were out for the evening at a Cub Scout Awards dinner, and we returned to our apartment to find that somebody else had been there, and they'd been there so recently we could still smell his cologne in the air. And a number of things, including a laptop computer and other valuable things, had been taken. And we had probably missed the thief by all of five minutes, if that. Now, if we'd known we were going to be robbed that night, I mean, I like the Cub Scouts, but I never would have gone to that dinner. If If you understand when the thief is going to come, well, then you'd be prepared for him. You'd wait for him. But that's just it, isn't it? Nobody knows when a thief is going to arrive, and similarly, nobody knows when Jesus is going to return. And because of the unexpected nature of the thief's visit, it comes on us suddenly as well. In Matthew 24, Jesus likens the coming of the Son of Man to a flash of lightning, which is even more dramatically quick and unpredictable. With apologies to the movie Back to the Future, nobody really does know when a bolt of lightning is going to strike. And as such, it comes unexpectedly and can create havoc unexpectedly where it strikes. And so in, this ch- in the chapter in Matthew 24 where Jesus says the Son of Man is going to return like lightning, he also warns, Against those who say that the Son of Man has or will return in a specific place. He calls those false Christs. And such warnings from Christ himself and this forecast suddenness of his return throughout Scripture, well, all of that would seem to render any speculation as to the time and place of Christ's return foolhardy, or even outright disobedience to Christ's specific instructions. Sadly, that hasn't stopped many often well-meaning Christians from speculating throughout history of the church up until recent days. There, Some of you are aware that there is a way to look at how God is going to end the world biblically called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism saw the reestablishment of a nation called Israel in, in the late 1940s and basically attached all these scriptural promises working off of that. They thought certainly that the Bible was teaching that Christ would return within a generation of 1949, at most in 40 years. And... Some of you may know, most of you probably don't, that at one time, both Wendy and I were uh, staff members with Campus Crusade for Christ. And like much of evangelicalism, that ministry got caught up in, the no, in the, what they felt was certainty of Christ's return. And you had leaders saying that Jesus would return by 1976 or 1980 at the absolute latest. I know this sounds perhaps crazy now, but this was a prevalent view among evangelical Christians at the time that we knew Jesus' return was going to happen and it was going to happen in this time frame. Now, a little bit after that, there was a book that we had some friends share with us and made the rounds among evangelicals called 88 Reasons for 88. 88. And supposedly working off of some scripture in Daniel and other places, the guy had had come up with a date for Jesus' return. That was going to be in 1988. Well, I don't think I need to tell you it didn't happen. It didn't happen in 1988. Um, I will say in, in something that ranks as high chutzpah, the same author came out with a book the following year, 89 Reasons for 89, claiming he'd made an error in math. Um, I suspect the second edition sold considerably worse than the first edition. Uh, There are all kinds of things, history is at least, at least in my lifetime, it's replete with these claims, Jesus is going to come at such and such a date and at such and such a time. And it's understandable that people would want to know when it is that Christ is going to return, but it's a pursuit that the Bible guarantees is going to end in frustration and it misses the broader point, namely, that we are to treat the return of Christ as imminent at all times and to act accordingly. Knowing that Christ could return at any time, even before the end of this sermon, which is probably a prospect that some of you would welcome, this should serve as a check on our attitudes and our actions. It should sober us, and it should make us want to be in a pleasing posture to Christ at all times because he could return at any time and continuing and contributing to that sense of sobriety that this is meant to bring about is the fact that beyond ending suddenly and unexpectedly the world is going to end publicly and spectacularly. Now, if our attention isn't captured by the fact that Jesus could return at any time, Peter also summons the graphic manner in which he will return. In verse 10, he further tells us that the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that have done on it will be exposed. Now, you might try to take comfort in the fact that Apocalyptic narrative in the Bible often employs heightened imagery. Revelation, for instance, is replete with figures who are meant to be taken in a symbolic fashion. However, it's clear here that Peter is not dealing with symbols, but a literal future that is supported by the balance of Scripture. As, Paul, as Peter mentions here, Paul also has written about these things that he's writing here. And specifically, he wrote to the Thessalonians at length about these things. Now, as a church, the church at Thessalonica suffered both persecution and fear that Christ had already returned and left them and or those who had already died behind. That's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. Jesus' return is going to be public and unmistakable. There's no way that the Thessalonians or any other Christians will ever miss it. Beyond that, as mentioned before, Peter himself looked to the prophecy of Joel 2 on the day of Pentecost as revealing the end of the process that had so clearly begun with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Again, these are things that are not going to be mistaken for anything but what they are, the return of Christ. And finally, there are the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Doesn't this sound like the sort of cosmic chaos that Peter's describing here? The come, Jesus Christ is going to come, and when he does, it will be unmistakable. It will be hidden from no one. All will see it. And the only difference will be whether it is a welcome event or a horrifying event for those who see it. And finally, we know from what Peter says here that the world will end in God's timing and on his terms. Peter tells us that the delay of these events, which has given rise to the false teaching that they will never take place, actually represents God's patience to allow for the full complement of those to be saved to come in a compliment that includes Peter's readers at that time and us, the delay in Jesus's return which was already being noted in Peter's day has continued to allow us to come and to know God. And today, there are many who are concerned that human activity is going to bring about the end of the world or at least severely alter the nature of the world and in the face of that it's comforting to know that it is god who is in control of such things and that the end of the world will actually serve his ends we see in this passage and the others two clear-cut ends emerging the first end of god and the end of the world is the ultimate restraint of evil and the punishment of evildoers. That evil exists in this world is often given as a ground for unbelief, really a corollary to the sort of scoffing that Peter chronicles here. I don't know if you've ever had this conversation with anybody, but I have, Or they say, I can't believe in God because of all the evil that I see around me. So either God is not good or God is not powerful enough to restrain the evil. Either way, I can't believe in him. Now, there are a number of things that can be said to statements like that. The people who say them generally don't view themselves as part of the problem of evil, though they are. It's interesting that somebody would take the stance that they see evil all around them when in taking such a stance, they are acknowledging that there are absolutes of good and evil. And they more to the point are appointing themselves the arbiter of such things, which some people would say is God's position. It's a claim to deity even as they deny the existence of deity. And they're making the same sort of error that Peter's rebuking here to mistakenly conclude that God's failure to act against evil definitively thus far indicates that he never will. Peter makes it clear here that God is going to act swiftly and decisively to destroy evil and evildoers in this cosmic destruction where the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. And Paul makes that even clearer to the Thessalonians in his second letter, the very first chapter in verse, in, uh, in verse five, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That may be the most politically incorrect statement of all time that Jesus is going to come and deal out retribution to those who do not follow him and, and punish them with eternal destruction. It goes down very hard for the unbeliever. Jesus is going to deal with unbelief, not with the patience that he does now, though this delay represents his patience, but with vengeance when he does return. In Christ's return, will settle once and for all the plague of sin which began in the garden. Those not inoculated by his righteousness will be swept up in the destruction. And this highlights the second purpose of God in the world's end, which is the ultimate vindication of Christ and his church. For as horrific as these details of the end of the world may seem, Revealing them to us is meant in large part to be a comfort to us. Knowing that we have a future with Christ and will be spared the destruction of evil and the ungodly ought to comfort and encourage us. Thus Peter tells us to wait for and to hasten the day of the Lord for it is our vindication as well as his. Paul can rightly tell the Thessalonians to comfort one another with the words of the account of this coming destruction. We have a new heavens and a new earth which will not be stained by sin to look forward to. Yet it is also clearly revealed to us to shape and restrain our present behavior here. We who are in Christ have nothing to fear from judgment. And yet we are to have a healthy fear of the Lord and of his power and righteous and of his power and his righteousness that ought to inform our behavior here on earth. Peter asks rightly, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We are to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish when he returns. We know how this story ends, but we also know that it could end at any moment and we will suddenly see the Lord in his power and glory. Let us then, as Peter exhorts us, live like we will see him thus and let it be both a comfort and a restraint to our behavior. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are in control of how the world will end and that you have called us into your kingdom, that we have nothing to fear by the destruction of this world. And indeed, we have a world that is untainted by sin to look forward to, that we will dwell as ourselves purged from sin. Thank you for this marvelous hope. Lord, we pray that your gospel would go forth and that your patience would be such that you would draw more men and women into it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 390, Christ is Coming, number 390. Please stand with me as you're finding that in your hymnals.